Good morning, everyone. I hope you're well. It's my joy and privilege to continue the series in Matthew 10 today. So we will turn straight to it. Uh, so I, last week, Caleb spoke on two verses. Uh, you may remember, if you're here, about the fact that Jesus sent the disciples out with nothing. They were to take no gold, no silver, no spare sandals. The passage then continues, verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all, uh, all that we can take from it, all that we can learn from it, and all that it reveals of you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We long to hear from you. Amen. Now, before we get stuck into the detail of this specific text, we really need to get some context, particularly when it comes to Middle Eastern hospitality. You see, hospitality customs were a vital part of the culture of the ancient world. And if we just look at this through our concept of hospitality, our concept of how we behave in the Western world, we'll lose something of the strength of this passage. They were formal, even sacred codes of conduct. And the traveller as well, when you think when we go travelling, when we go to visit somewhere, in those times the traveller was vulnerable. They didn't have hotels, they didn't have the same independence that you can have if you go to travel somewhere. When you turned up in a different place, you were vulnerable and codes of hospitality protected you. So the best way to look at what hospitality meant in the Bible and in general in the culture of the time is to look at some examples. There are some cracking examples, particularly in the Old Testament, of good hospitality and what happens when there's bad hospitality. So first of all, three examples of where hospitality is offered. Bless you. Uh, so the first one is Abraham. So I'm just going to read from Genesis 18. I've just got the... the uh, Passages up there if you want to note them down for later. Some great stories to reflect on. So Abraham, the Lord appears to Abraham and three visitors come to him. This is still in the midst of, he's just had the covenant of circumcision, he's been told that, and then he sees three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way. So they say, well, very well, that's fine. So he hurries into the tent to find Sarah, his wife. Quick, get three sayers of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. That isn't a case of just chucking the kettle on and getting them a quick cup of tea so you can find out why they're visiting. 
This will have taken a long time. He wasn't rushed. His first priority when these visitors arrived was hospitality, because that's what the codes of the ancient world would expect. He was to care for their needs, let them wash their feet, and ensure that they were given food. That's the first example. The second example is in Second Kings. Now we've moved on a long period of time, and we've got to one of the prophets, Elisha. Prophets traveling, they were moving from place to place, they were bringing God's word. And Elisha comes to a place called Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. She's forever called the Shunammite woman. We never know her name. But whenever Elisha passed by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Such was their heart of hospitality. They built an extension for this prophet, essentially, so that whenever he could come, he could have his own space. When you offered hospitality, you also protected the guests that you'd brought in. I've got a rather extreme example for you here, but since we'll be talking about Sodom and Gomorrah later anyway, we may as well bring it in now. So, another example of hospitality offered is in Lot. Now, Lot, this is a story that offers graphic evidence of hospitality. So these two, so the three men have been to see Abraham. Now, there's some debate about it's two angels and the Lord. So the two angels have now moved on. So it's, it's just very soon after the passage where they've already had a lovely big meal at Abraham's house. They now turn up in Sodom, uh, chapter 19, and Lot was sitting in the gateway, and he pleads with them to come and stay with him, and, and he'll have them in his house. So they come into his house. You can wash your feet. Remember that, that's important. And spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. Sodom and Gomorrah have got a lot of problems. They are terrible places. And when they get there, all the men from every part of Sodom surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. Unbelievably extreme example that I hope helps you see just how important hospitality was. There was this honor that if you brought someone into your house, you would actually rather send your daughters to that I'm pleased to tell you, it didn't happen. The angels blinded all the men, so everyone was safe. Uh, but it just goes to show the extremes. So those are some examples we see of where hospitality has been offered. There are also some examples of hospitality withheld, not offered. I wasn't put hospitality rejected, but that makes it sound like we're rejecting the offer of hospitality. This is people who withhold giving that hospitality when it's expected of them. You see, failure to provide hospitality is seen as a hostile act. So the first example here, we looked in Judges uh, a year or so ago. So you might remember Gideon and the Midianites, and 
how God whittled down Gideon's army to 300 men. They managed to defeat the Midianites, and off they go, running after the kings, Zeva and Zalmunna. And so in Judges 8, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zamunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zamunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zamunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Sounds pretty extreme for just refusing to give the army some bread. Again, it helps us see just how important hospitality was. He goes on to Peniel, and then they make, he makes the same request. They also refuse. So he says, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. And that's exactly what he did. Another example is King David. Well, this is, in fact, before he was king, Saul was still king at this point. David and Nabal in 1 Samuel 25... David's out in the wilderness at this time, biding his time, really, until he becomes king. And he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent ten young men and said to them, go up to Nabal and greet him in my name. Say to him, this is also interesting, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill-treat them, so he talks about how they, they treated the people well. Uh, so they ask for some food. Nabal answers, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? That's beside the point. But anyway, he asks that. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? He, re- he withholds hospitality. David's men turned around and went back. They reported every word, and David said, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. There's about to be an all-out war, because he's refused to give strangers, really. He didn't know who they were, because he's forgiven, because he's withheld this hospitality. There's about to be an all-out war. Thankfully, Nabal has a very wise wife called Abigail, who steps in and rescues the situation. You can read about that later. One last example now from the New Testament. You may be familiar with the story when the woman comes in and anoints Jesus with perfume and wipes, pulls it over his feet and her hair, wipes it with her hair, and it's just a very powerful image. Simon the Pharisee in that, sometimes we talk about the fact that they say it's a waste of perfume, but, and sometimes we miss an aspect of this, which we can see in Luke 7. Jesus turns to Simon and said, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Remember Abraham, the first thing he said, he'd give water for their feet. And Lot said the same to the angels. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, another custom of welcoming someone. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. So there's this contrast, and it just helps see, really, how important hospitality is. 
So we might think we have a thing or two to show people in the Middle East about some things, like queuing, for example. I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East, or you know, they don't really have a reputation for being superb queuers, and we like to pride ourselves on that one. <laughs> but we cannot compete with them on their incredible hospitality. There's no sense of overstaying your welcome like we have in this country. It's an honour to host. And there was an expectation that you would do that and that you would receive likewise if you were to go elsewhere. It was a gift. So when we look at those who receive people who are doing God's work, these principles are helpful. As we open our homes, we partner with them in their mission. We give a gift, we offer protection. So if you have a gift for hospitality, you follow in the long tradition of God's people. It's a wonderful gift to have. Never despise a gift of hospitality. Being able to offer up your home and your heart and be part of God's wider purposes. So, let's look at the actual detail of the passage. Hopefully that's given you a good background on the biblical culture of hospitality and just how very important it was, which just helps as we look at this detail. I want to highlight the way that these instructions were, one, strategic, two, prophetic, and three, practical. They were also rooted in the culture of the time, so culturally relevant. And I want to ask, are we embracing these as we go out into the world, as we go out to our different front lines where we meet with people who do not yet know Jesus? So, verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. The context is towns and villages around Galilee, where Jesus is now well known. And the whole idea of staying in one household is strategic. Hosts will have family and friends who will come and visit while they are based at that house. And you can start building up a community of, of Jesus followers, of people who are listening in, who are interested. It talks about finding someone worthy. That's because the minute they step into that village or town, the first person they find is going to offer hospitality, as we've just seen, because it is just what you do. So there's a sense in which Jesus is instructing his disciples, just ask around, find out who would be considered a reliable person to go and stay with, someone who will be where God wants you to be. So that's why it talks about that, because everyone is otherwise going to offer them hospitality. So most will offer their home, but find out who is the right person locally. But there's a prophetic aspect to these instructions too. It sets the great model for the early church. Find that right house as a base. And that often becomes the place where the church in that town or village begins. These instructions we can see back, uh, projected forward into the book of Acts. For example, Lydia. Uh, this is in Philippi. So Paul's in Philippi. And he comes to meet Lydia, who's a purple seller, dealer of purple cloth. So one of those listening, this is verse 14, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So they came and they stayed at Lydia's house. 
After that, Paul and Silas go into prison, and when they come out of prison, you get this verse at the end of chapter 16, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So when Jesus gives these instructions to his disciples, these are instructions that then get taken through into the book of Acts. They are instructions that get taken through to mission work today, to church planting. It is about finding that house and from there, stay there. Don't go dotting around everywhere, just stay there. And that then becomes a key base. It's practical advice too. Don't be distracted moving around. Jesus is sending his disciples for a clear mission to go and tell them that the kingdom's coming to do miraculous signs. You don't want to be worrying about where we're going to sleep tonight and what should we do and should we, oh, we better not offend that person because they wanted us to stay with them for a few nights. And what, you know, you start getting distracted with things that are not, that are completely peripheral to the main cause of what they're there for. So it is just very practical. You're sleeping and you're eating will be taken care of. You don't need to worry about that. Just find a home and start your work. And as we mentioned, the host also offers them protection and provision while they're there. So strategic, prophetic, practical. And culturally relevant, well, let's go on to verses 12 to 13. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. So the focus when they arrive at this house is to let their peace rest on it. What does this mean? Primarily it's a traditional greeting. It's not, it really is just a traditional way that they would greet one another. A traditional greeting that is still used by many today. Let's take, for example, the way that Muslims greet each other. They say something along the lines of Assalamu alaikum, which means peace be with you or peace be upon you something I think used in many other cultures as well. It would have been the culturally relevant, appropriate way to greet people as they entered a home. So it's really about deriving that cultural understanding rather than trying to literally understand what we mean by peace resting. What, what does that actually mean? It's, it is more just a greeting. However, it is a greeting that I would suggest we've somewhat lost in our culture. I wonder how you greeted people as they came in today. Did you just say, hi, how are you? Hi, how was your week? Hi, we're like pulling out information. Hi, how are you? Rather than bestowing peace. So I think you can all do with a bit of a stand-up. And in Anglican churches and Catholic churches, Episcopalian churches, I don't know what other denominations, but quite a few churches today, as part of their service, they share the peace. And I thought it would be quite nice to do. So we're going to stand up. And I'm going to use this liturgy from the Anglican Church. After I've said, uh, peace of the Lord be always with you, you're going to say also with me. And then when we, we're going to turn around. Let's turn around. If you're not near anyone, just go for a walk. We used to do this at Bishopsthorpe Palace. And they would shake hands with everyone. And it was just, took forever. I don't suggest that. <laughs> um, but it is a chance to shake one another's hands and say, or you can hug each other if you like, and say, peace be with you. So... Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. The peace of the Lord be always with you, and also with you. Let us offer one another a sign of peace. <laughs> peace be with you.
Okay, wonderful. <laughs> right, you can take your seats again now. Great, hopefully that's great. Woken you up a bit. Uh, isn't it nice, though? I think it's a lovely thing to just bestow peace on one another, say, peace be with you. Did anyone know the route of goodbye? Do we know how I say goodbye? Goodbye. God be with you. Very good. Yes, so God be with you. 1565 was the first usage of truncating it all together and just saying goodbye, but God be with you. And when you actually think of these things, adios, the Spanish, goodbye, adios, to God, adieu, Adieu to you and you and you. Uh, the French version of the same to God. We are, we are sort of bestow, we're either bestowing God's peace upon the other person or we're, we're sort of giving them into God's hands, really, which is a lovely thing to do when we really think about it. So Jesus says to disciples, go and bestow this peace. But if people are not willing to receive it, it comes back to you. The peace comes back to you. It's like a gift, and the gift just doesn't leave your hands because they're not interested. They don't want to receive it. If re- so, and Jesus is also figuratively, figuratively, of course, speaking of the peace that comes from following him. And we'll t- talk more about that at the end. So if you're received kindly and hospitably by the people, the disciples will confer on them the most valuable blessings. They'll be conferring on them peace, but they also know that they are bringing with them a peace that passes all understanding, a depth of peace that they will find nowhere else. But if rejected, that's fine. The blessings will be bestowed elsewhere, which takes us to verses 14 and 15. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So again, we see the strategic, the prophetic, and the practical here. So strategically, Jesus is instructing his disciples to simply move on to somewhere else if they're not welcomed. This is strategic. Ultimately, there's ripe harvest elsewhere. There's no point staying and trying to make it happen. If they're not interested, just move on elsewhere. And we see this later with Paul when he goes into a new town. He always went to the synagogue first. He preached in the synagogue. The Jews wouldn't listen. He just moved on and that's how he ended up going out to the Gentiles and finding ripe harvest there instead. There's a prophetic angle to this. You see Jesus knocks at the door. He doesn't force his way in. Revelation 3, verse 20, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, those who reject him will not know his peace and God will deal with them. So the disciples, I said, they go, you go on, God will deal with them. And it's the same for us today. Jesus is not trying to bash his way in. He knocks at the door and he will come in and eat with us. What about the practical element? Well, 
If people are in, in the town are in hospital, inhospitable or reject the hopeful message you preach, don't take it personally. Don't hold a grudge. Don't start feeling, oh, no, what have I done wrong? Or how should I have done it? Oh, I'm just useless at being a disciple. I'm useless at taking the message. Just let God deal with it and move on. It's time efficient. Let's just keep on going. It's also positive and moving forward. So it's practical too. And then we finish with this strong verse uh, which emphasizes what a bad decision it is to say no to Jesus. Worse than for Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we saw with Lot that these were two cities that were just full of vile sin to the extent that God felt there was no other option than to destroy them entirely. Abraham pleads with God, if there could be just 50 righteous people in there, will you, not, will you hold off? God says, I'll hold off. Abraham says, forgive me, Lord, but if there was just 25 righteous people, will you hold off? I'll hold off. If there were just 10, and God agrees that he will not destroy them if there's 10 righteous people. Well, given we know Lot, his wife, and his two daughters were four, sadly, it seems there were not more, there weren't six or more righteous people because God did destroy those cities. Lot came out. That's a whole other story. Uh, but, but basically, they were destroyed because they were just so full of sin. Now, this is a... What, how can children be full of sin? There's a lot of questions there, but this is where we are today, that they were destroyed because of the wicked sin that was there. So when Jesus says to his disciples, it will be more bearable for those cities than on the day of judgment, what does he mean? Well, he could mean two things. One is that it will be more tolerable because these cities have already been judged, while the places that refuse Jesus now haven't. not quite sure about that, really. I think it is more that Sodom and Gomorrah were less accountable for their wickedness, because the cities of the house of Israel should know better. Sodom and Gomorrah were not, they were not the people of God. This was, before, this was before Moses, before Israel was formed. They were not God's chosen people. They were not part of his covenant commands. But the house of Israel, these are towns and villages around Galilee that are part of God's people, that know they are waiting for a Messiah they know about his kingdom and they should be eager to receive it. They know of the promise of a Messiah and they missed it. They missed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so if, his, if Jesus' disciples go out and are rejected, it would seem worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. In either case, it seems clear that it is a very bad idea to fail to be hospitable when the opportunity arises and ultimately, we know that. That's the whole point of our mission, that we know that for those who don't choose Jesus, it's a very bad end result. And whilst we might not like to think about it very much, it should be what propels us forward to share the good news. So are we embracing these principles as we go out into the world? Are we being strategic? Are we praying for God to show us? Are we looking for anything prophetic in what we do? Are we being practical and, of course, culturally relevant? In our day and age, how we go in to, to share the message of Jesus looks very, very, very different from what happened there. But the instructions still hold true. 
the importance of acting in a strategic way is just as important as being practical and culturally relevant. It will look different for each person as you walk about this week, this month, this year, as we look and pray for opportunities to share our faith. So we've looked at the context of hospitality, we've gone into the detail of the text, but I want to finish by zooming out and reflecting on a powerful parallel that we see as we bring together both this passage and the verses that Caleb spoke from last week. Let me just read them. I haven't got them up. I haven't got those first verses up, but let me just read the whole passage once more. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Solomon and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. The disciples go with nothing. They find a worthy household and they stay there if the household is willing and they let their peace rest there. Jesus instructed something he'd already modelled for he left heaven with nothing. God found a worthy household and didn't push his way in. He told Mary what was going to happen and she said, it's the Lord's will. She accepted. She was a willing mother. But Mary and Joseph were a willing household. And as they accepted Jesus in, God's peace was with them. And how about us? We come to God with nothing. We have nothing to offer God. What about the worthy household? In our own strength, none of us are worthy, but through Jesus' blood, we are all made worthy. And he knocks. And if we are willing, we open the door of our hearts and we ask him to stay, and he will never leave us. And his perfect peace resides in us. What he says to the disciples, he models and is true for the way that he comes to us today. Bit of Greek for you, the Greek word menate, uh, stay, remain. So it's the pas- in, in this passage in, in Matthew 10, when they say re- remain in that house, It's this word, remain, so actually stay, abide in this house. And it's exactly the same word as we have in the passages in John 15, the vine and the branches. So where Jesus says to remain in me. So remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And down in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. (coughs) So it's that same idea. As the disciples go and remain in the very practical instructions, we can pull that and say it is the same way that we remain and Jesus remains in us. 
I love that. And finally, if the band want to make their way up, let's come back to that wonderful word, peace. So, many of you will be familiar with the Hebrew word shalom. The New Testament was written in Greek, so the word is actually Irene, E-I-R-E-N-E. But Jesus is referring to that Hebrew concept of shalom. The New Testament writers, when they wrote the Gospels, will have had that word in mind. Because actually, when we say, peace be with you, when the disciples came and peace was to rest upon them, it doesn't mean a peace, absence of war type peace. It's a wholeness. It's a deep well-being. It's God's original design for his creation that we would live in community with connectedness to God's creation and to others. There's a a real sense of a prosperity or a flourishing in a holistic sense. Flourishing personally, economically, but relationally at, at peace with the world in a sense. In that sense, there is the lack of conflict. It's at peace with who we are in God's eyes, connected to his creation, connected to those around us, and of course, most importantly, connected to God. That's the perfect peace that resides in us as we invite Jesus in. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, first of all, for your word, for what we can learn from instructions that you gave to your disciples. But Lord, we particularly want to reflect this morning on that that powerful parallel that you came to earth with nothing and you stayed in a worthy household and brought your peace. And that today we come to you with nothing. All we can give you is our heart. And you knock at the door and you say, if you are willing, I will come. I will reside with you. I will abide with you. And not just that, but my peace will rest upon you. Lord, we thank you for that perfect peace, that perfect peace that casts out all fear, that perfect peace that even when things around are falling apart, in you we have our rest. In you we have our strength, our reason for being, our everything. I want to pray for anyone this morning who does not know that peace that passes all understanding. Jesus is knocking at the door. He says, open and I will come in and eat with you. I will reside with you. All you have to do is say enter. And Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your peace, that we would be peacemakers, that we would be people who can share the message of good news, but the message of peace, of a full well-being, wholeness, flourishing. Lord, may we be at peace as we relate to you, as we relate to your creation, as we relate to those around us. We thank you for your shalom.